From the Cervera Newsroom in sunny Miami, welcome to the Miami Real Estate Podcast, your home for expert insight on all things Miami real estate. I'm your host, Omar DeWint. Let's get started. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back, my friends. From all of us here at the Miami Real Estate Podcast, we're excited to get back to our regular slate of programming now in the new year. So as always, our mission is to inform, intrigue, and inspire you the Miami real estate professionals who are shaping the most exciting city in the world. Miami, baby. Before we dive in, a quick programming note. You can expect a weekly ping for the pod in your feed on Thursdays. That's going to be updates on episode releases, including content from our Why Miami series, how to be a top producer, and on-the-record profiles. Stay tuned because we've got some great guests and topics lined up already, uh, and they're going to be there in the coming weeks. Of course, please subscribe to the Miami Real Estate Podcast if you haven't already. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Okay, let's get to it. Kicking off this year, we've got a new segment for you, Introducing Economic Insights with Dr. Marcy Russell. Dr. Russell is the Chief Economist for Severa Real Estate's Global Affiliate Network, Leading Real Estate Companies of the World. Leading Real Estate Companies of the World, or Leading RE for short, is a global community of 550 independently owned real estate companies across 70 countries that are awarded membership based on rigorous standards for service and performance. And Cervera Real Estate being, of course, the parent company to the Miami Real Estate Podcast and one of South Florida's largest independently owned brokerages. Economic Insights will be led by Jessica Edgerton, Executive VP of Operations for Leading RE, and our new Miami Real Estate Podcast correspondent, together with Dr. Marcy Russell. On the first of the month, Economic Insights will give listeners a macro perspective on the major domestic and global issues that are impacting communities across the world, including, of course, Miami and Miami real estate. In this first installment, Dr. Russell is going to deliver her top five Economic Insights from the month of December and tell us how they'll be impacting us in 2023. This includes inflation, consumer sentiment, Federal Reserve activity, the U.S. housing market, and last but not least, a European energy outlook. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Then join us again next Thursday and every Thursday moving forward for new episodes. So introducing Jessica Edgerton and Dr. Marcy Russell for the Miami Real Estate Podcast. Take care, folks. I have Marcy here with us. Marcy, it is so good to see you. Let's start with the big picture. We've felt some cautious optimism over the last couple of months. Inflation rates have been waning slowly with some jerks in the road, but showing an overall decline. Job market looking okay. At the same time, though, we are all getting bit in the butt with gas and with food at the grocery store. And just this morning, the stock market slid back on gains after Speaking of some, some some jerks in the in the inflationary road, we got some news that consumer prices are still on the rise. So break it down for us. What is going on? Well, Jess, I have to say that I didn't see any real surprises um, in any of the data that was released today. You had a producer price index that came out that showed that producer prices for the year, right? So for the last 12 months are up 7.4%. Now, that would be a startling number under any circumstances, except, of course, the ones that we've lived through over the last 12 months. Because what we all know is that back in June of last of this past year, just six short months ago, um, which in this world feels like a lifetime, but six short months ago, PPI inflation was running 11%. 
So we've come from 11% down to 7%, right? That's a 400 basis point decline in year-over-year -year inflation. So it is actually true that prices certainly are elevated. Inflation is still much higher than what you would see under normal circumstances. Nevertheless, inflation has come down dramatically over the last six months. And just sort of foreshadowing sort of what should we expect in 2023, if you continue on this trend in another six months, which puts us into April of next year, which we all know we're going to be there before we know it, um, inflation will be running at 3%, right? So it's important to note that if we continue along this trend, right, and whatever the trend is, is pretty much what you should expect, um, then we will see inflation at 3% in the second quarter of next year, which has real implications for future paths of monetary policy. It has implications for the housing market. It has implications for all sorts of things that we're going to talk about today. And when I look at the University of Michigan sentiment number that was released this morning, when you pick through the fact that sentiment really didn't change all that much, it's very, very low. People are very, very negative on the economy right now. I've been calling it an emotional recession because if you look beyond housing, where clearly numbers are down, we're going to talk about why today. Housing, yes, I would say is definitely in a technical recession as defined by a major decline in economic activity. So transactions are down. You all know this. But when you look beyond housing, you can't find a recession. Consumer spending is still up for the year. Retail sales are still up for the year. Personal incomes are up for the year. And jobs, which are an important portion of any economic picture, the U.S. economy is still creating jobs at over 250,000 a month. So even though we've seen 70, 80,000 layoffs in the technology sector, the overall economy is still hiring. So all those things together mean that even though people's opinions about the economy, which are heavily influenced by inflation, right, are very negative, inflation and recession are not the same thing, even though they rhyme. They're not the same thing. It's an off rhyme. It's an off rhyme. It's an off rhyme. But in, in, a, in a poem, you would say those rhyme. Okay, so I kind of entered into this with the most recent sort of 24-hour hiccup, feeling a little a little iffy. You are giving us a more positive view. What is the Federal Reserve thinking right now? We've got their meeting coming up next week, 13th through the 14th. We've, we've been consistent with those 75 basis point hops all throughout the year. There was, there was some talk about a 50 points, some easing here. Is that actually going to happen, or are we still looking high with them? What do you think? Well, markets are anticipating a 50 basis point increase at the next meeting. So markets are anticipating, and I happen to agree with the market, um, markets are anticipating that the Federal Reserve, which has sort of hinted that they will continue to raise rates, but not at these sort of jumbo sort of increases that we've seen over the last few meetings. So what that means is that the Federal Reserve at this December meeting will raise rates by 50 basis points because they're going to get another inflation number, another CPI number between now and then. And unless it comes in way higher than expectations, I think you'll get a 50 basis point increase at their next meeting. 
you will get another 50 basis points increase at the January meeting, which will take the Fed funds target rate to 4.75 to 5%, which is what markets are saying is the terminal rate right now, meaning that's when the Federal Reserve stops. So the Federal Reserve is likely to stop raising rates in January of this year, but that takes the Fed funds target rate to 5%. So short-term rates at 5%, which means that they will hang out there, I believe, for probably two to three meetings. But if inflation continues on the same trajectory it's on right now, then that means the Federal Reserve starts lowering rates in the second half of next year. That you're going to see a Federal Reserve that actually starts to bring rates down six months from now because inflation at that point will be back to the long term norm of between of, of 3%, basically. So inflation between two and 3% is what the Federal Reserve is shooting for. When they see that number, they're going to actually start to lower rates because a 5% Fed funds target rate is not what is consistent if inflation is at 3%. It's more like 3%. So I think second half of next year, that's when you start to see rates begin to come down. All right. So. I know we're a little premature on the timing here. The University of Michigan just released their consumer sentiment for December. Um, do you have, you, you mentioned it before, can you break down a little bit more that psychology? What What is the national sentiment right now? Sure. Well, one of the things that I really look for in those numbers are the long-term inflation trends. And that's what the Federal Reserve looks to as well. It's so hard, Jess, for us to get our minds around the fact that this inflation picture which has dominated headlines for the last 18 months, is really only temporary. If you think back to the 1970s, right, the last time the U.S. economy experienced a bout of inflation, that inflation lasted 10 years, not 10 months. It was a 10-year process of inflation. So to put it into perspective, 10 years of inflation in the 1970s meant the Federal Reserve had to go to double-digit interest rates to get it under control. We've had inflation for about 18 months, and in raising rates as they have, you're already seeing inflation come down. So what that means is that one of the things the Federal Reserve looks at is long-term inflation expectations. What do people say they expect inflation to be a year from now, five years now, 10 years from now? And that has steadily declined in that consumer sentiment survey and long-term expectations of inflation are 3%. They're 3%. So they're staying remarkably anchored, which gives the Federal Reserve room to move once the actual CPI numbers come down to a level that they're comfortable with. Housing market time, and this is where the questions always start flowing in. Oh so yeah, lots to talk about. Lots to talk about there. Wild ride. You mentioned, yep. you know, you you really think that we are entering a technical recession when it comes to the housing market. But it is, again, sort of the the weird is the word of 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 the economic insights for 2022. It's it's a weird one, right? We've been trending in line with easing inflation on the mortgage rates, but we've still got a pretty significant inventory problem not going away anytime soon. Prices are still up. There's rumbling in the, you know, in the news and in, in uh, cocktail parties that we're going to see some home price declines through 2023. What is your prediction, Mercy? 
Well, I think in order to understand how 2023 plays out, we really do have to sort of understand what actually happened in 22, because normal housing market cycles are driven by lots of enthusiasm, speculative behavior, everyone sort of pouring into the housing market at the same time that banks loosen their lending standards. So you get people under a normal housing market boom and bust cycle, like we saw in 2008, 2009, writ large. Um, in that normal cycle, people have mortgages they can't afford. They eventually begin to default on those mortgages. There is a ton of inventory that comes onto the market that depresses prices. And at the same time, sentiment around the housing market turns very, very negative. So people's balance sheets are upside down. It takes them years to recover. And you see this real dip in home price prices and in activity because new buyers can't afford to sort of move in the market at all. That's a typical boom and bust. It takes years to work through it. That's not what we're seeing right now. If you look back to last year, lending standards have stayed high. You don't have people in homes that they can't afford. In fact, because interest rates were so low last year, affordability has just now become an issue. Just now recently over the last six months. And so I brought a graphic, right? So, you know, I at least I want to show you one graph, one graph because I think this is the graph that defines, summarizes what we saw over the last year. And this is a graph with what we call an affordability threshold. So basically what this captures is, can the median household afford a home? So what's the median household? The median household has income of, basically what that means is, 50% of households have income less than the median, 50% have more than the median. So right now the median household income is around $68,000, right? So that's the median household. So half the households in America have less than 68,000. Now, from an affordability perspective, that's measured as does the median household making $68,000 a year spend more than 30% of their income every single month on a mortgage payment, right? So that's how we measure affordability. And you can see that during certain times when either interest rates are really low or house prices are declining because my friends, income doesn't move it doesn't move up and down like this. Income kind of slowly, slowly, slowly increases, right? So that's not typically a factor. What moves around more quickly are prices or interest rates. So if you look at this graph, you can see between 2011 and 2013. See between 2011 and 2013? Housing was extremely affordable because you were above the line. Now, the reason for that was that prices were falling, right? They were falling because of the house price collapse, right? And interest rates were really, really low. So affordability was, you know, it was, it was way above the line. So houses super affordable. They became, they become less affordable as prices go up. So house prices started to go up in 13, 14, 15. Now in 17, interest rates still low, income's going up, prices not really moving a whole lot. So you're really affordable. Now, of course, we can see that in 2021, house prices were still, housing was still affordable because interest rates were so low. As interest rates have gone up, prices have exploded, affordability has collapsed to levels we haven't seen really ever, right? But I gotta tell you, friends, 
this is only relevant for people who have who are sort of haven't bought a house yet. So this is relevant for your new buyers, right? Particularly for those new buyers that make less than the median income. So of course, your first time buyers are really being slammed right now. But Jess, there's something else happening as well that we need to understand. As interest rates go up, for the high-end buyer, the buyer where price really shouldn't matter, they've got plenty of money, housing is a portfolio decision for them, right? So if you're a wealthy person, you can put your assets in stocks, you can put your assets in bonds, you can put your assets in housing, but you can also just park it in a CD. And right now, short-term CDs are paying above 4%. It's very, very rare to get a guaranteed 4% rate of return in the economy for a short period of time. So essentially, because everybody knows that these conditions are temporary, they're not going to last much longer. Just like the cheap mortgage rates of last year weren't going to last forever, so everyone poured into the housing market and basically you squished three years of activity into two years, right? So now you get this sort of drought in the housing market because anybody who would have maybe naturally bought a house right now, they did it six months ago already, sort of getting into the market before rates went up. And for that high-end buyer that's got plenty of cash, you can park your cash in a short-term CD and make a guaranteed 4% and just wait this out. So it's really hard conditions for each and every one of you out there, because whether it's this end of the market or this end of the market, which are being affected by different forces, the way that interest rates sort of work on their decisions, it's a portfolio decision here, it's an affordability decision here, and because it's temporary, nobody's moving. We're getting questions in. We're going to take these at the end before we go back to the housing market with these questions. Let's go global for a minute, uh, starting with the ongoing European energy outlook, particularly as we move deeper into, into the winter. The war in Ukraine is showing no signs of waning. And we've really got some government involvement in Europe on the energy side. So what are the implications there? What are they doing? What is your outlook for 2023? Sure. Governments across Great Britain and Germany in particular are doing pretty much everything they can to shield their citizens from rising energy prices, particularly as we go into winter. Now, I for one am never in favor, uh, particularly in a time when you need people to actually conserve energy to lower the price for them because I'm an economist, I believe the markets work. And so if you want to discourage someone from doing something, you have to make it more expensive. Right. I mean, that's how supply and demand work. We're seeing that in the housing market. Housing gets more expensive. People consume less of it. So in Europe, um, in some ways, governments attempt to shield their consumers from higher energy prices are going to make the supply issue worse. Now, on the flip side of that, they've spent the last nine months storing natural gas Every coffer is full in Europe. And so they're in a decent position going into the winter. And many of you have heard me say this before. This situation essentially um, sort of bolsters the case for the idea that it's never the train wreck you can see coming that's going to be the problem. It's the one you can't see coming. And so it's the surprises that disrupt economic activity because Europe has had 
months knowing that energy prices were going to be expensive, that Russia was going to cut off the supply of natural gas. They've had time to prepare for it. And if you have time to prepare for an economic crisis, it mitigates the effects of it. And I think that that's what we're going to see in Europe. I don't expect the severe recession that many people thought was going to occur last year. Um, I think it's more of a mild flattening out of economic activity. The real trouble for Europe will be next year if the conflict with Ukraine continues. And by the way, even if it doesn't, Europe never in their right mind will go back to relying on Russia as a primary supplier of their energy needs. Um, they were an unreliable, clearly um, disingenuous partner from the get-go. And now they sort of realize that and all that sort of is coming back to them. So they're going to go through a long-term adjustment process to wean themselves off of that reliance. So this isn't a one-year problem, two-year, three-year, four-year problem, quite frankly. Other big news globally out this week, China just reopened. And they reopened not after a long period of considering what that was going to look like, as far as I can tell. It was in response to protests. So it was a little willy-nilly. Um, what is that? What This is a massive shift for a huge population. What's that going to look like? And will the reverberations be uh, beyond the Chinese borders? Well, the, the most tragic side of that, I, I'm afraid, is that as we go into winter in the Northern Hemisphere, you have a population of a billion people that don't have much herd immunity built up to um, COVID-19. And so the healthcare reality that they are about to face probably means that it won't take long before they're actually back in lockdown once they see the reality of the stress on their healthcare systems. Now, it might not be as draconian of a lockdown as what we've seen over the last three years, but China has yet to really come to terms. And as you said before, this is a rather chaotic way to do it. So the sort of thought that, oh, they will lift the restrictions and the Chinese economy will go back to pre-2019 activity levels, um, I believe is a pretty premature. In fact, China is sort of in the process of growing old before they grow rich, which is a theme that I've touched on over and over again. But the limits to which they can grow their way out of this problem have already been reached. So I can't get enthusiastic about the next 18 months for the Chinese economy, because I think that they're going to face um, probably a pretty rapid escalation in the severity of their actual healthcare problem, which means they're going to be right back into some sort of lockdown um, probably in the next two months, I would say, generally sort of seeing what happened from the U.S. experience last winter and the winter before. Any uh, impact on global inflation or local Chinese? What, what is the interplay here with, with inflation for China? Well, certainly the Chinese economy sort of slowdown and lockdown has put a lid on energy prices globally. But remember that the supply shock from Ukraine um, was temporary in that the world kind of didn't know would Russia be able to export their oil. And that was keeping prices artificially elevated in anticipation of restricted Russian supplies throughout the year. Well, Russia has sort of 
demonstrated that they will indeed be selling their oil. They will be selling it to China. They will be selling it to India. And if the cap of $60 a barrel or some sort of depressed level on Russian oil actually holds, then that will be deflationary for the entire globe, right? So we could have a situation where even if China reopens, I don't expect energy prices to bump up the way that they did in it when, when sort of Russia invaded Ukraine. So I don't think it actually changes the energy picture all that much. Let's uh, touch on one more hot topic outside of housing right now, although perhaps reverberations across all verticals uh, on this one, which is which is the crypto landscape. So last economic insights, the whole F. FTX saga was exploding. Uh, the news headlines weren't talking about anything else. And it continues to sort of be uh, on par with, with some, some daytime drama here. What are your predictions for this market in 2023? Well, what we've discovered is that the crypto world was pretty much just as incestuous as um, a daytime television show can be in some ways in terms of their relationships with one another. So amazingly, um, it seems as if despite the size of the blow up, which is in the trillions of dollars in terms of wealth lost, it seems to be sort of isolated and contained within the crypto verse, right? And so we haven't seen this spillover into traditional finance, which is pretty remarkable because normally when you have a blow up of that size, like if you think 2008, 2009, what started as a housing market problem quickly reverberated across the globe into all sectors of the economy. And I've been pretty surprised that for the most part, crypto has stayed, the problems in crypto have stayed in crypto. They haven't spread out beyond that. So um, while it makes for wonderful headlines and it's really interesting to watch, much like a soap opera, it doesn't really spill over into what I would call the real world, the world of you and I. Um, I'm guessing that for most people out there, particularly if they weren't actively involved in trading crypto themselves, or they weren't involved in a real estate market that maybe um, had seen some appreciation because of crypto, like maybe Miami um, or some places in California, um, for the most part, none of us have been affected. So it makes for great headlines, but it's spillover into the real economy has been remarkably contained. It's time for Q&A, guys. Populate those questions. Let's do this. All right, uh, questions on interest rate. What would the interest rate have to be to get the affordability back to a reasonable level? It depends on what happens to prices, right? So prices and interest rates move in two different directions. So I do expect that in the... In areas where prices have gone up the most, right, which that's your Sunbelt cities um, primarily, so south where COVID kind of pushed people in, in sort of search of wide open spaces where we can be outside, that's where we saw prices go up the most. And that's where I expect to see prices weaken the most. So as prices weaken in those Sunbelt cities, and I'm not talking about a 30% slide, I'm saying you're going to come off of the highs. So you're going to see, you know, the, the prices come down a little bit and interest rates, 
if you get mortgage rates back to 4%, right, which is where I think they're going to be end of next year, um, that changes affordability dramatically. So it all depends on how much prices come down. But even if you move back to 4% on interest rates, um, that's going to take a, that's going to get you way closer to that affordability threshold than what we saw before. And one of the things that this question sort of brings up that, that I didn't sort of touch on earlier, um, this afford what's what's fascinating about this time around is that places that have traditionally been considered affordable housing areas, like say Metro Atlanta, have suddenly become unaffordable. And I think that that's this. A graphic like this will mask so many sort of regional trends, and you've got a tremendous amount of regional diversity um, when it comes to housing markets. But one of the odd things that we've seen this time around is that there's nowhere that's affordable any longer. Um, and, and that's what's become sort of a, a, a big story as well. And I've noticed this just in the inflation numbers that it used to be the case that when I visited my daughter in New York and I'd grocery shop with her, I was always stunned at how expensive groceries were in New York. Or when I tried to travel somewhere and stay in an Airbnb, I knew if I went to California, every bag of groceries was gonna cost me between 50 and $100. What stunned me recently is it's just as expensive to grocery shop in South Haven, Michigan, where I live, as it is in New York City. Yeah. And so it seems as if strangely the COVID sort of spread New York City, San Francisco, coastal high prices across the economy for everything, including housing. And so the big price increases you've seen in those markets that used to be affordable, I think that's where you're going to see the biggest price declines, quite frankly. Will the historic increase to government cost of living adjustments increasing money payouts further drive interest rates higher in 2023? Um, I don't think so, because if you think about your average um, person on Social Security, yes, they're going to get a double digit cost of living increase. But Social Security payments overall are pretty low um, in terms of, um, you know, nobody's getting rich off of Social Security. Let me put it to you this way. And the folks who receive Social Security are typically not in the market for new housing. Um, they're not in the market. They don't change their um, consumption patterns dramatically, I don't believe, in response to a 10% increase in their check. So basically, they used to get $800 a month, and now they're going to get $880 a month. I can't imagine that that's going to drive a lot of inflation um, in the economy. $80 a month is very different than a $3,000 one-time check that we saw people get two years ago. That's very different. And remember, too, that inflation wasn't just a people getting more money, um, government stimulus kind of thing. Half the inflation were supply chain issues. So supply chain issues drove inflation last year. And supply chains, if you sort of look at traditional measures of, of supply chain stress, we're almost back down to normal supply chains. Now, not completely. And certainly somebody out there is going to say, I still can't get the garage door that I wanted, you know, 12 months ago, and I'm still waiting on my refrigerator. OK, so there is some sort of backlash. But in general, um, if you look at supply chain index, which one of the things I look at is the New York Fed puts out a supply chain pressure index. It's almost back to historical norms. So that's a that's half the inflation right there 
that dissipates. How do you see wages affecting inflation over the next year? Um, I have never been a believer that wages drive inflation. That one of the reasons why we have higher wages right now is that um, um, basically you've got a massive reorganization of people and economic activity because of COVID. So you threw tons of people out of work in the service sector. Many of them permanently left and they're never coming back, which means those sectors are now scrambling and having to pay people a lot more to induce them to come back and work in our kitchens, in our hotels, and in our restaurants. So you're getting wage inflation at the most low levels. That is colliding with a decline in the overall U.S. labor force for a couple of reasons. Number one, lots of people have died of COVID right? So they're gone from the labor force. Even young people have. So you're squeezing the labor force from, from that perspective. Retirees escalated retirement because of COVID. And demographically, you don't have as many young people entering the labor force because Gen Z is just smaller than- um, They don't exist. They don't exist. We've said that over and over. They don't exist. They're not there. So all these things together are putting pressure on wages. Um, now, in terms of where does inflation come from? Ultimately, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Too much money chasing too few goods. Now, the inflation over the last three years has come from an infusion of government money, right? Too much money, colliding with an economy that couldn't produce more goods to meet it. So those two things together were necessary. Under normal conditions, wages are rising. Supply will rise to meet those demands, right? So companies want to sell people stuff. They do. They want to make stuff and they want to sell it to people. And they can and will do that if it's possible, right? So it's you could imagine a world where China getting rid of their COVID policy, sort of allowing more production in China will actually bring inflation down in the U.S., even as wages go up in this country because of real constraints on the labor force. Another housing question, are foreclosures increasing in the U.S., or do we anticipate that happening in 2023? They're still below historical averages because the mortgages that people do have are super affordable because of what happened last year. And we have seen an uptick in new mortgages with adjustable rates, right? But back in 2008, a third of mortgages were adjustable rate mortgages. So adjustable rate mortgages are always a sign that people are stretching, right? People are stretching to afford something and they go with that adjustable rate mortgage because they can't afford that 30-year mortgage, right? I believe people are taking out adjustable rate mortgages right now because they know they're going to be able to refi in a year or two when mortgage rates come back down to normal um, because no one's anticipating that they stay at these rates. We have a question from John. I'm here in eastern Iowa where the farm economy dictates a lot of our income. What are you seeing happening in the Midwest region? Well, the farm economy is being squeezed in a couple of ways. Number one, um, their profitability depends on um, Crop prices staying high, but input prices staying low. 
And crop prices have been high, but their input prices are high as well. So the price of diesel fuel is staying elevated. The price of fertilizer is staying elevated. And much of that is because of our dependence on Ukraine and Russia for the inputs that go into our farm economy. At the same time, the US dollar has been really, really strong, which tends to discourage exports. So those two things together mean that the really flush years for agriculture, which were in 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, when farm income was at a peak, you're gonna see stress on farm income, which means more consolidation, um, fewer farmers in general, but the farmers that are left are gonna be much larger and much richer. I know most aren't anticipating a housing bust in 2023, but is there any confluence of factors that could make this possible? If so, what are they? Sure. If you get a massive recession in the U.S. and the unemployment rate goes to 10% and stays there, and it in it in its wealthy people who lose their job instead of low-income people that lose their job, then absolutely you could get a foreclosure crisis. Um, if you continue to see big layoffs in the tech sector, um, there's a lot of folks in the tech sector who um, probably have really big, expensive mortgages in places like Seattle and San Francisco. And certainly if the tech sector deteriorates considerably, then that would be a situation where you might see um, a foreclosure crisis. Um, but if you look at U.S. debt to disposable income, Prior to 2008-2009, debt to disposable income levels were at 150% in the U.S. Right now, they're 100%. So if you look at Canada and Sweden and Australia, unfortunately, their debt to disposable income ratios, which is the measure that matters for how fragile, how likely are you to see foreclosures happen, um, those countries really are the place where I would look more than the U.S. for a housing market bust. I think you're going to see a housing market um, decline pretty significantly in other countries um, because of those ratios, but, but not in the U.S. Going back to the energy question, is there a possibility of the United States opening up to Venezuela? Um, I think that's a definite possibility. But remember, Venezuela doesn't, um, while they are a big oil producer, um, generally those kinds of arrangements don't have huge effects on the price of oil. It will make a difference at the margin, but it's not going to take the price of oil to $50 a barrel, anything significant like that. Um, their supply is just not that great. Guys, we're way past the bottom of the hour. We sure uh, it, are. But you know what? Have, that was our Christmas present to each and every one of you. That's right. That's right. Marcy, thank you so much for all of this. We will be back in 2023 with Marcy for more. Marcy, always a huge pleasure. Be well. Everybody, be joyful. We'll see you all very, very soon. From all of us here in Miami, where the future is always bright. Until next time. Thank you.